0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy, in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A 21st century scramble for Africa is underway as Russia, China and the West compete for financial and military spoils in the continent's emerging economies. We explore what's at stake and who's winning. Mark Twain lamented that a turnip is female in German, while a girl is neuter. Now, a lot of speakers have been pushing for these languages, like society in general, to become less focused on gender. First up, though... British Prime Minister Theresa May was defeated in Parliament yesterday after trying for a second time to get MPs to approve her plan to leave the European Union.
3: The eyes to the right 242, the noes to the left 391.
2: A horse prime minister expressed her disappointment at the deadlock, voting against leaving without a deal and for an extension, does not solve the problems we face. Nearly a quarter of the members of her own party voted against her deal alongside opposition parties. Some politicians want a harder Brexit, with the UK fully out of European institutions, such as the single market and the customs union. The fate of the vote was sealed when the chief legal officer to the government, Geoffrey Cox, indicated that the UK could have difficulties leaving the temporary backstop arrangement put in place to avoid a hard border with Ireland.
1: The legal risk, as I set it out in my letter of the 13th of November, remains unchanged.
2: Many feel Mrs May hasn't provided a good enough answer to the issue of how to deal with the UK's border between the Republic of Ireland, which is in the EU, and Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and would leave the EU if Brexit went ahead. This morning, the government sought to defuse panic about the prospect of a no-deal Brexit by declaring it would temporarily suspend tariffs on many traded goods if that came about. But the outlook remains turbulent. And Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn had his own way out of the impasse. The Prime
3: Minister has run down the clock and the clock has been run out on her. Maybe it's time instead we had a general election and the people could could choose who their government should be.
2: So what happens next on the choppy road to Brexit? And what does it mean for the leadership of an embattled Mrs May?
3: Well, I think it was expected that she might lose again, but it was not expected that she would lose by another three-figure margin, in this case, 149 votes.
2: Joining us to help make sense of all the latest twists and turns in the House of Commons is John Pete, our Brexit editor.
3: Two of the biggest defeats for any British government in history is quite a bad performance for Theresa May.
2: And that's two votes in succession that she hasn't been able to get through on her deal. What does it mean for the Brexit process and what happens now?
3: Well, at least in theory, Brexit is supposed to happen in in two weeks' time. Um, But as the Prime Minister said after yesterday's defeat, today Parliament will vote on whether MPs want to leave the EU with no deal. And they are expected to say, no, they do not want to leave with no deal. Um, And tomorrow they're going to vote on whether, since they don't want to leave with no deal and they failed to pass the deal, um, the British government should ask for an extension of the timetable beyond March 29th.
2: But a no-deal Brexit would also be very disruptive for the EU, wouldn't it? So if Britain takes that possibility off the table, Theresa May's allies are saying that drastically damages her negotiating power in what is clearly a very sticky end game with the EU.
3: Yes. I mean, the, the argument about no deal has gone on more or less since this process began, when Theresa May herself um, famously said no deal is better than a bad deal. Um, I think the problem with that was that no deal has always looked very damaging for the UK um, and potentially damaging also for the European Union, particularly for for Ireland. Uh, and the, 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 the problem that that has led to is that nobody on either side really has taken seriously the risk that there would be a no deal Brexit. So it hasn't really worked as a, as a bargaining tactic. I mean, many MPs have said, you have to be willing to walk away from the table if you're going to get a good deal out of the European Union. But actually, the EU never took this seriously as a threat. And I think the fact that MPs are about to vote not to leave with no deal, demonstrates they are right not to take it seriously as a threat. It could still happen by accident. But nobody actually wants to leave with no deal.
2: Well, let's look at another way in which pain is extended. Uh, That is this idea of extending the negotiating period to enable the government to carry on having those tussles with the EU uh, without a deal yet in place. Assuming this motion passes and it comes before the House of Commons on Thursday, how easy is that to achieve?
3: I think the the EU, the signs from the EU are that they don't want to be to be to be responsible for a a crash out brexit so in a sense once the british government puts in a request for an extension the eu is, is almost bound to grant it but they will be quite they will do so with some reluctance and i think they will say we don't want it to be a long extension we want to know what it's to be used for we want some assurance from you that you have some plan for ratifying some form of brexit deal um But at the end of the day, I do think when they meet um, next week, they will say, yes, you can have maybe two months, maybe three months. Um, There is going to be some discussion about whether actually they should make the extension a lot longer. But I think it's much easier to do it, at least at this stage, uh, on the basis of only two or three months.
2: And where does this leave... British politics and the fragmentation that we're seeing of a lot of long-standing political groupings as a small third force that's emerged in Parliament pro-EU discontent with the existing leaderships. Do you think this is a sign that something is changing in our politics?
3: I think Westminster politics is certainly in considerable turmoil. Um, I mean, the traditional sort of British stability has been built around the two main parties, Labour and the Conservatives who actually increased their share of the vote in the 2017 election. But Brexit has sort of cast across that stability because the bigger divide now is between those who support Remain and those who support Leave. And both main parties are completely divided, um, split from top to bottom on this issue. And the new grouping, the independent group, is also a very strong Mm -hmm. Mm Remain-oriented group. And I think almost anything could happen in British politics um, within either party over the next um, year or two.
2: John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Next up, we turn to Africa, where the continent's vast resources have been sparking interest and investment from geopolitical rivals. What might that mean for the region? Jason Palmer learns more about it.
0: In the 19th century, European powers embarked on what historians call the scramble for Africa. On realizing it was rich in resources, colonizers carved up the continent in the space of a few decades. The second great surge of foreign interest in Africa took place during the Cold War, when East and West battled for the allegiance of newly independent African states. Today, some might say there's a new scramble going on.
1: Great power competitors namely China and Russia, are rapidly expanding their financial and political influence across Africa. They are deliberately and aggressively targeting their investments in the region to gain a competitive advantage over the United States.
4: On December 13th, John Bolton, Donald Trump's national security advisor, gave a speech in Washington where he talked about a new era of great power competition in Africa.
0: John McDermott is our Africa correspondent, joining us from a rainy Johannesburg.
4: And there are a couple of interesting aspects about the speech. The first was that he gave it a toll. It was a bit of an implicit sign that America is concerned about its waning influence on the continent. But the second is how he implied that African countries ought to make a choice whether to side with the United States, China or Russia in what he seemed to think was a zero-sum competition.
0: So what is it that people are vying for here? What are the spoils in this new scramble in Africa?
4: Countries have been seeking out their own interests in Africa for centuries. But there's something different about what's been happening over the past decade or so. There's more countries trying to seek out their interests than ever before. And they're doing so diplomatically militarily but also economically if you take the period since 2010 there's been more than 150 different embassies opened in sub-saharan africa and they see african countries as having a lot of diplomatic clout they make up a third of the un general assembly and they have three of the non-permanent seats on the security council and militarily too there's a whole bunch of interests which foreign states see African countries as helping them meet.
0: The suggestion there is that lots and lots of countries are kind of piling in. Who are the main players?
4: China, of course, Russia, the West, and the EU. And then there's a whole bunch of maybe what you'd call second-tier countries. So you're thinking Turkey, India, and the Gulf countries who are especially active in the Horn of Africa.
0: Right. China being the obvious big player. What are its specific interests and what's it trying to do? What have you seen?
4: This wave of Chinese interest has been going on for a couple of decades. And remember that there are 10,000 Chinese businesses and 1 million Chinese actually living in Africa. So it's a diverse picture. But whenever I travel to African countries, it's quite common to arrive at a Chinese-built airport, get a taxi, and then drive along on a Chinese-built road, pass a Chinese hotel and a Chinese restaurant and a Chinese casino. And that's, in many ways, the idea of China in Africa. But it's actually much broader than that. In 2017, China opened its first military base overseas in Djibouti, and it's now the number one supplier of arms to African countries, for example. It's also doing a lot of soft power work. There are more African students at Chinese universities than there are at British or American ones. It's a broad effort and one that's about much more than just bridges and airports.
0: So it sounds as if China got in first and remains and by definition will be the main player in Africa, do you think?
4: There's no doubt that it has in many ways displaced Western countries when it comes to being the primary economic partner of African states. And inevitably, perhaps, it's faced accusations of having a neo-colonial relationship, whereby it uses its massive financial power in order to gain leverage over these kind of relatively small, relatively poor countries. While African countries have had more freedom than ever before to sign these deals, they do make some bad ones. And what you've seen in the past couple of years is countries like Ghana, Zambia, Kenya, NGOs, local journalists exploring just how opaque and corruption-enabling some of these deals have been.
0: Why shouldn't I view this as just an economically driven colonialism, just like the previous colonial era there? Why, why is this fundamentally any different than what we've seen happen before with tragic ends?
4: I think of all the foreign countries who are conducting dealings in African states at the moment, Russia's probably has the most semblance to the 19th century. People that know Vladimir Putin but don't necessarily work for the state seek out often fragile states with leaders who are broke or under attack and try to help them in exchange, often for strategic minerals. Every country has its own interests and they pursue them in different ways. And Whereas I think China probably has an interest in there being a a stable, prosperous Africa. I'm not actually sure that Russia does so much because its endeavours are more defined by opportunism. I don't think that is necessarily the case for the vast majority of other interests where it's entirely legitimate trading and commercial endeavors where African countries are at least having some semblance of transparency in how they conduct them.
0: Which is the category where we would put the U.S., I imagine. What does the U.S. want?
4: It's a good question, and I'm not sure John Bolton's speech actually answered it. Over the past few years, you've seen the U.S. have mostly a a military interest in Africa, But the speech did imply that going forward, the United States would try to have more of an economic influence. It's announced a big package of investment that should see it be easier for American companies to do deals on the continent. But at the moment, we'll have to see because we haven't seen much on the ground yet.
0: I suppose a lot of these questions so far are themselves almost colonial in the framing, right? You know, what what do people want out of Africa and how are they getting it? What about Africa itself? What strategies have African leaders and organizations like the African Union been doing to, to deal with all of this competition, this interest?
4: So African countries have more choices than ever before and they will bristle at any idea that they're not making their own choices. But as a negotiator for the African Union said to me, we're not being very strategic about it. So, in some cases, African countries will want to make their own individual deals, but there are other cases where they could probably gain more leverage if they pool their resources and presented a united front. And African countries are making progress on this. There's a continental free trade agreement which was launched earlier last year and steadily picking up signatories. And if that were signed, it would be the biggest progress on free trade in decades. But it would also help African countries gain more leverage. It would make them more powerful on the other side of the negotiating table.
0: It seems clear that there is a great deal of money to be had here. That's why there is so much interest in the continent. I'm wondering what you think needs to happen so that the deal-making actually benefits everyone in the way that it should.
4: History tells us that foreign states will always pursue their own interests in Africa. And far too often, the deals that are being signed are benefiting a narrow elite rather than the wider population. And that's why it's really important that people don't forget about democracy and accountability. Because without that, there's no way for ordinary Africans to hold their governments to account. And to the extent that the West can do something, it should not forget that democracy is not only a good in itself, but it can actually foster economic growth by having African populations make sure their leaders are making better deals.
0: John, thanks for joining us.
2: change is underway in european dictionaries a lot of speakers have been pushing for the continent's languages like society in general to become less focused on gender but that's a challenge as quite literally every noun has a gender in french and german and italian from mothers and fathers to tables and chairs Jason Palmer spoke to Lane Green, who writes our Johnson language column. He's been looking at the problem. Problem, by the way, is neuter in German, but male in French.
1: It's long been the case in most languages in the world that a default human is a male. Well, in 2019, it started to look a little odd that a default person is one of the two sexes of the human species. And some words that have a feminine ending uh, give you a very different meaning. A good French example is ambassadrice, which famously means the wife of an ambassador, not a female ambassador, which is an ambassadeur. Lane, it, it sounds like these types of gendered words are pretty entrenched in the language. Has there
0: been much success in trying to change that?
1: So recently, the French Academy, the Académie Française, which is the sort of guardian of traditional French, decided it would finally bless feminized forms of job titles and functions like doctor, professor, and president. So there are now officially blessed forms like la présidente, la docteur, with an e at the end, to signify that the doctor or the president in question is a female. And French is a little behind the curve on this. Well, the Academy, probably better put, was behind the curve. French people had started doing this quite a while back. The government put out a circular on this already in 1998, and female ministers were starting to ask to be called la ministre, not all of them, but quite a few of them. And the Academy howled and said, this is absurd, and French just does not allow this kind of thing, and it's illogical. But people kept on doing it. So the Academy getting around to it in early 2019 just meant they were only about 21 years behind the government and quite a long way behind a lot of ordinary feminists who made it clear that this is what they preferred. And what about other languages? How have they dealt with this this shift? Every European language you can think of has a different strategy and a different set of issues depending on their gender system. So German has a suffix -in that makes the noun feminine. So Student Male student becomes studentin, female student. But how do you refer to a generic student? A German like everybody else just assumes that a male student is generic. And so they're doing things like putting an asterisk at the end of student and then adding the in ending. Other things include capitalizing the I-N, so Student capital I-N, things like that. The problem is they look ugly on the page and many of them are impossible to pronounce. So you get confusion there. Depending on the language, you see people doing lots of different things.
0: Um, this is another one of those occasions where it seems that English speakers have it a little bit easier. We,
1: do, we don't have to have the, the gendered gendered noun. Well, we do have our own issues. So think about the word master and its equivalent mistress, which have very, very different meanings. The actor and actress has been robust for a long time. Now, serious women want to call themselves actors, or many don't, but many do. So you see in, in English's case, we're doing the exact opposite of what the French are doing. We are trying to get rid of the formerly marked feminine forms and say everyone has the right to be an actor. Um, So feminism can push in both directions, interestingly. Well, I mean, that's a function in part of the fact that, you know, in romance languages, all of the nouns are gendered, right? So it, it can't be simply ignored. It can't be ignored. But the fact that English, relatively speaking, lacks all that gender marking hasn't got us out of the issue. We have the everyday problem of how do you say things like each student has to turn in X's homework On Wednesday, do you say each student has to turn in his homework, as traditionalists would have you do? Do you say his or her every time? Do you alternate between his and her? And the solution that's really on the rise is to say each student has to turn in their homework on Wednesday. And though traditionalists howl at this. It's actually far, far older than people think. It goes back to at least 1375 in the Oxford English Dictionary and has been in robust use ever since. So the Economist's Own Style Guide – blessed a they with a preceding sort of everyone as in everyone has their own opinion around last year and sure the they doesn't match the singular nature of each student but it doesn't match the gender if you use his and people reckon it's better to be wrong in number but at least gender inclusive rather than be sexist thanks for your time lane thank you
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.